Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. This is Jason Oldenbeck and I'm here with Paul Axton and we're kind of doing double duty. We're recording an introduction for an upcoming class as well as to share with folks who aren't in the class in the form of a podcast. That that creativity then uh, in itself, then, is a kind of argument for. It is a presentation. And I think that the, in the artistry, for me, one of the great novels of all time had huge impact on me, was The Brothers Karamazov. Not because... Never, never heard of that one before. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when you say that's one of the greatest ever, it might, it might be. Yeah, it was okay. <laughs> I don't think we should be snobs about this because I think that we'll all kind of resonate differently with different things. And that's not bad. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. You know, in, in musical tastes, you know, I can just be enveloped in, in the music of Yo-Yo Ma, just the cello music for some reason it just, and I, I would consider myself a kind of barbarian when it comes to music. I'm sure that I need development of my sensibilities and tastes. But, and so I think it's a process for all of us in different areas. But the thing that Dostoevsky does that pertains to theodicy, and by the way, Hart gets this. You know, Hart has a great appreciation for the, for the Brothers Karamazov. And that is that in that novel, there's a, there's a full presentation of evil. I mean, you really, you really, if you want, if you want an argument against God, go to Dostoevsky, because I really don't think there's any finer argument for atheism than in this novel by this Christian novelist. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what the novel does. It puts the very best of, you know, the, the, the brothers each represent a kind of form of unbelief or insipid, you know, the insipid nature of the, the father, the Ivan is, is kind of a very kind of, uh, he's a skeptic, but he's a very creative skeptic. The, there's not an argument against that in Alyosha or, or in Zosima, the, the, his, but there is just an alternative world pictured. In other words, Ivan uh, exists alongside Alyosha. The skeptic and the believer are brothers, but the the one that we we see as the fuller character is is the 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 good brother, the one that has an appreciation for beauty. I think we can understand the evil brother or the skeptical brother uh, because we all are you know, but we also can see that there is a fullness to the the other characters. And the novel itself, then, is then picturing this kind of fullness. I think that in a good theology, that's what we do. That is that there is a, 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 we're taking into account a fullness mm. of certainly evil. We, you know, we don't want to end up uh, doing a theodicy. Certainly, you know, and, and uh, this just applies across the board. Um that our understanding of everything, if I think if we're doing theology correctly, that there's going to be a deeper engagement with it, a, a greater fullness. And I'm afraid that what has happened 
in natural theology is sort of like what you get in Anselm's argument. I'm going to tell you the greatest thought that can be thought, and it'll only take about 30 seconds. There you go. Yeah, that's, that's what, uh, as you're talking, I'm thinking, yeah, the, the, thing, the thing about it, and this is why I couldn't just look at my friends and describe what imaginative apologetics was, right? <laughs> I, can't, I can't do this with you in, in five minutes. And, and that is, that in my mind, the theodicies, they can all be presented very quickly. The cosmological argument, the ontological argument, you can do it, you can wrap it up neat and tidy. And now you can talk about it at length too, but you can wrap it up neat and tidy in a summary that anybody can understand. What's interesting is how many people it still doesn't convince. And um, I think James Sire, said this uh, and uh, how much um, I, there was a book he did called why good arguments often fail. Now I don't, I don't really, the book wasn't that memorable. So I really don't even remember what his conclusions were, but after so many decades of presenting apologetic arguments, and the guy's a PhD in philosophy from Mizzou, I think uh, wrote the universe next door, you know, the worldview inventory, that so many people have studied and, and understood that has a lot of value, but he, he's re reflecting on decades of making these arguments and, and, and making them as well as anybody can make them and realizing it's not getting through. It just, people don't come to these, people don't go, I, I have this question um, about God and I need you to make it make sense or I'm not going to believe it. It's just not the way belief even works in the first place. Um, that there, there has to be something inherently appealing to things that engage our, our mind. And I'm, I'm afraid that's what's happened in, you know, theology that is a neat package. Uh, you and I both know people. I'm, uh, we're probably thinking of the same people. They're perfectly nice people teaching theology. The, the theology, I could I can do that over here. I'll run that down for you. But now that we're done there, hey, let's talk about football. Because the theology stuff, we did that. We got that package. I tied that bow up nice and pretty. We got that uh, figured out. We got, it, we got it figured out. You're saved. I'm saved. We're all going to heaven. Uh, and it pertains to nothing, really. And so let's talk about something else. Yeah, and I often get this, you know, what you just seem to always be talking about <laughs> theology. And I think that there's nothing else to talk about. <laughs> it's all theology. <laughs> In other words, rightly done, this should be, and I know, I know for many people, I can just see their eyes glazing over because what their conception of that, that is the boring be. stuff that pertains to nothing. Yeah. But of course, idea of the of capturing the imagination no it pertains to everything yeah. and rightly done it makes that connection uh and we're always about it we're always you know in in the process we're always on a of doing this thing and to I'm, I'm afraid that the theology and the natural arguments take on the same characteristic so. of oh see that, that argument worked Hey, did you see the Redskins? You know, I, I, I don't mean to pick on sports fans or, but in other words, I think that 
our minds are so we're we're kind of living in a virtual a society captured by virtual reality because the real thing has proven so boring well the the real insidious um implication of uh, of the analogy i know you're using sports as an analogy because you know in essence it's a it's a thing that that nothing really rides on other than the pocketbooks of the owners or the players the real insidious thing is when we can do the theology and then go do some evil and there's no and there's there's no implication and what you're describing is that good theology encompasses everything has to do with everything and i'm and one of the things that has that one of the ways that that's impacted our understanding is even in it, it, it has to do with the physical world and these physical bodies and the, the places that we're in and the people that we meet and the animals that we're near and the air that we breathe and the thoughts that we think and the songs that we sing. All of it is encompassed in this. And I think that the gospel, that the, the, our understanding of the gospel, I don't want to say that there's different gospels that could be true, um, but that our understanding of gospel uh, at plowshares is one that is fuller and more and, and robust. And there's, there's never a point where you get done and you think, cause I, I say this sometimes just out of jest. Well, I'm glad we figured that out. And now we're done talking about it. It's never something that you get done talking about. There's always more to think about and more to do and more to live I don't know. That may be what eternity actually is, is there's nothing. I mean, we, we never, you never get to the point where I learned it all and any, any theology or any answer, or any argument where you can get done giving it is probably just inadequate. I, I'm afraid that the insipid theology and the immorality that we have, the epidemics of, you know, sexual perversion, they're not unrelated. I think we just have to see that. Uh, and it's so sad because uh, you just see it repeating itself again and again. Clearly, for some people, what they do with their penis has nothing to do with their theology. Uh, but apparently it should, you know, that we should probably talk about these things. I think it's actually Stanley Horowitz who said, no, actually, the, the church can tell you what to do with your genitals. Uh, <laughs> And should that, in other words, we have these things that we can't, that in some way they don't relate and that our desire, and I'm not saying that any of us are free of that, but we should, in other words, the, the, our theological understanding needs to address a kind of exponential desire that we're all subject to for area, you know, if it's the, the Jerry Falwells of the world or, uh, and sadly, the Ravi Zacharias, you know, the, uh, uh, a man who seemed just to have it all together, who I'm afraid, and you can't blame the theology, and you can't do this with John Howard Yoder or anybody else, but I think what you can do is say, well, apparently, the ethical, you know, is it too much to say the ethical failure may in fact relate to a theological failure? Is that, I mean, is that? Well, what, what, and I, <laughs> I think that's James's point, right? And I think James is arguing with a 
misunderstanding of Paul um, that, no, what you believe is what you do, and what you do is what you believe. There is no separating those things. But essentially, um, we've always been trying to separate them so that we, because it's always more convenient to be able to say, well, as long as you believe these things, you're fine. And believing just means saying them. It doesn't mean doing anything about it. But that's why James says, show me somebody who's saved by what they believe, and I'll show you somebody who does what he believes. And that's the point. What we do is what we believe. Now, the scary thing is that means me too. Yeah. And there's plenty of times when I'm doing things, and, I, and yeah. you've got to look back and say, oh, my gosh, that's what I believe. Is that what I believed at that moment, or was I conveniently forgetting what I believed? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, it's probably more complicated than that, but on a, on a real down-to-earth level, our actions are our beliefs. Yeah, and I went the phallocentric route because that's actually the name that some give to what is called, you know, ontotheology. I think natural theology has a phallocentric characteristic to it. In other words, the point is that you can take these things and translate them directly. This is the Lacan and Zizek, you know, that, oh, this, this pertains to everything if we know how, to, to, how it pertains. And so kind of the male-oriented notion of dominance and the suppression of the feminine, oh, that shows itself certainly in an intellectual orientation or uh, an understanding of the role of reason, but it, and it shows itself then in the same time in the forms of violence that are connected with it, the forms of abuse uh, that we tend to, to do uh, to one another. And so what is, what is the resolution to a kind of phallocentric understanding, uh, a perverse understanding, well, it is an appreciation of the feminine. It is an appreciation. I think that's, you know, in a Zizekian or a Lacanian understanding that can be translated into a Christian understanding, is that part of what it means to be feminine is that there is living in the midst. It, it is an embodied, it is an, there is a, an acknowledged incompleteness. Uh, you know, that's the, what, Zizek does with the, the form of the law. And in one form of the law, in other words, what I'm describing is sin here. Mm-hmm. I, I think we're just, these arguments can just give us illustrations of sin. What we would, the arguments to do is what we would like the law for us to do. It's complete itself. There's life in the law. Everything's contained there. That is, in Paul's illustration, the, the failure of one type of subject, that we would tend then to find everything in, you know, the law, what is that? Well, that, maybe that's language, maybe that's the symbolic order. So I think rightly understood, we can translate these fallacious philosophical arguments for God into that it, it pertains to all of us in our psyche, in our psychology. It's performing a particular psychological function. And that's part of the imaginative, too. The, 
we're reading ourselves into this and how these arguments then what what is you know what is it doing for me or or how is you know there's a lot of power in the greatest thought that can be thought if i own that thought uh the guy that can think the greatest thought thought. (laughs) i've just crossed the ontological divide (laughs) yes i can't tell you how many students i tried to explain you know and i was given the five minute elevator speech on what he was doing there and just looked at me yes the best thing i ever heard (laughs) so in the class for those of you that listen to the podcast that may not know posher's bible institute is our attempt to share what uh, we're doing at posher's in a way that people can come and take classes and and learn more about our peaceful understanding of what Christianity is about. And this, you know, again, this, this is kind of doing double duty for us as a, um, as a podcast and also an introductory uh, piece for a class. But in a class, we're going to be kind of, we're going to be looking at some of those, some of the classic arguments, hopefully not spending too much time on them, but it'll probably be important to know what they are and to try to have a handle on them because we want to deconstruct them a little bit. And, and reconstruct what or construct um, what we think um, a, a, a reshaping of the imagination looks like and, and show what that, what, how that affects the way we think now. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. THE 315, imaginative, imaginative apologetics. I'm looking forward to it. Coming soon. And are we... Are we on schedule? If we're not, it's largely my fault. Uh, because <laughs> I didn't mean that. I mean, we can say the date if we. Uh, I, this, we, we were thinking the 19th. But I that is correct. That, that is correct. Yes. Um, but I, um, yeah, we, that is what we said. Yeah, the 19th. But well, you could tell it's been a busy week for me. But. Um, <laughs> But yeah, we we've got some stuff. We're, we've got a really good start, and I think we've got the a good skeleton here that we can hang some of this stuff on. So I'm excited about it too. I this is good because um, I didn't realize how much how many of my thoughts have been kind of wrapped up in this for a long time. I'm actually looking forward to it as a way to articulate some things that I'm still thinking about. I didn't realize I'm still thinking about them, but uh, they're there. So I'm really excited. Oh yeah, yeah. It's the it's the it's the the fun of the conversation. Yeah. All right. Cool. Thank you, Jason. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com/slash Paul Axton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org/slash donate.